and welcome to Your Direction, a podcast dedicated to discussing the science of purpose. I'm your co-host, Tony Burrow, and joined by my trusted co-host, Patrick Hill. Hi, Pat. Hi, Tony. Um, And the good news for all of our listening audience is once again, we have somebody for you to listen to who is not me and Tony. Um, We're always excited to get to bring people on who are not the two of us. Uh, And in particular, we're very excited to bring on uh, today's guest, Dr. Leslie Lev, who has been at the University of Oregon for a very long time, both from her personal education and now as a uh, professor. And uh, we love uh, to start off by having you describe a little bit about your sense of uh, identity, your sense of direction, given given the name of the podcast. Like, how did you get to uh, get to here, and how would you describe yourself and your your journey here? All right. Well, thank you, Pat and Tony. Really happy to be here. And uh, let's see, I think you, you started off well by introducing me as uh, I do have a long history at University of Oregon because I started here uh, as a graduate student, a PhD student in psychology. And I was just really interested uh, at the time in looking at gender socialization and why, you know, what it is about families, about parenting, about our peers and community contexts that shapes uh, what ultimately become apparent differences um, at a population level between males and females or boys and girls. So, mm-hmm. and in particular in some of the areas of mental health, like we know that, that especially as teenagers, rates of depression are much higher for girls than for boys. So that was what brought me to the University of Oregon as a, as a young graduate student. Um, then I went off and did a research career uh, at Oregon Social Learning Center for, for 10 or 15 years and then came back as a professor more recently, about, about nine years ago, to University of Oregon. So that's sort of my, my career path, I guess. Um, and I think I'm here, but you, you all can help me understand better why I'm here, because uh, <laughs> we've engaged in some conversations about um, just purpose and mental health and how how the two constructs and ideas are are similar and how they differ. It, it certainly sounds like you are comfortable being a duck, an Oregon duck. Um, you spent a, a while at Oregon and you talked about your pathway there. When you think about your pathway through your research career, your, your absolutely prolific research career, writing on mental health and, and prevention, um, what to you appears to be the biggest challenges and probably a lot of points of entry into this conversation, but mm-hmm. what are some real challenges that you think are important for research to address when mm-hmm. it comes to youth mental health? Yeah, that's a great question, especially in today's world where, you know, we're just, we're seeing incredibly sad, high rates of depression, mental health, suicide. Yeah. So I, I think I'll tackle that by saying, you know, I, I did start off, my training is in developmental psychology. So I was really more interested in the, like, just the basic developmental evolution, essentially, of mental health and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did have a kind of a turning point in my career, early in my career, right, right after I received my, my training as a graduate student where my my advisor, who I'd been working very closely with, passed away pretty suddenly. Um, and that 
and I essentially then was, uh, I inherited some of her longitudinal research studies, which were these phenomenal studies that had followed boys and girls since they were, you know, in infancy, toddlerhood. Now they were teenagers hmm. uh, to look at their life course trajectory. And I think that turning point for me of like, all, the, all instead of being um, a student, now having, now taking the lead on something really got me thinking about not just the developmental pathways, but mm-hmm. how can we use the developmental science and the knowledge that we have to, to make a difference, to, to design programs and interventions and practices that will intervene on some of these processes. So hmm. that, I guess, is really where I, I see the greatest need right now is to better understand prevention and early detection uh, of mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. So we, we know, you know, it's, it's clear when, when someone is seeking treatment or when you have a suicide attempt or suicide, uh, but what can we do early in de- development and what can we do with the knowledge that we know about kind of the pathways to or risk factors or protective factors that can help us put into place supports and programs and services earlier in children's lives so, so mm-hmm. that we are ultimately reducing rates of mental health problems and suicide for, for our communities. It's such a fascinating line of work, and I, I'm glad you, you alluded to it, and, and Tony mentioned a bit about how prolific you have been over the years, um, that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. once again, we, we, we're really good at getting guests who do not bring up all of the things that they, <laughs> they've done in their life tra- trajectory. And, and obviously, uh, like you're, you've done a lot of fascinating work combining psychological perspectives uh, with uh, discussions of genetics, with discussions of human development, all towards trying to bring all these perspectives together. Um, in, in and just looking at your your C, your CV, your research statements and such, uh, like it's it's amazing all the people that you've been bringing together in, in this pursuit of prevention. And I I guess like before we move on, like that in and of itself seems like a, a challenge of getting to, getting all these people to the table. And just curious, like how have you how have you done that? How have you been able to to be so prolific in addressing uh, this this topic of prevention from so many different angles with so many different parties around the world? Uh, like, do, do you have any recommendations on that front? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that question. Uh, because I guess my the, the high level response to that is that, that, that people are complex mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can't, any of us can't just take the knowledge that we have to be able to better understand or learn more about what, whatever topic we're interested in. Uh, but I, I don't have, you know, I'm not trained as a clinician. I'm not um, a clinical scientist. I'm not a biologist or a geneticist, but I know that those pieces are important. We know that, for example, with, you know, with mental health or depression, there is a biological or genetic component. And, right. and we also know that, that folks who are trained in, you know, clinical science, there are, there are clear evidence-based programs and practices that work. Um, and so I think just being able to put, to pull together, find colleagues who are, who have these really incredible expertise in areas that I'm not trained in, and I don't have the expertise in, but when we put the, you know, the, our minds together, we can really think of ways to either study designs or, 
analysis approaches or just ways to think about the questions and solutions in in a way that none of us could do on our own. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's that's really the most fun part of my of my work is being able to talk to people who are experts in fields that I am definitely not an expert in. That's really interesting how the career path that you spoke to, you spoke to a particular hardship that opened a door for you to think about the data you had access to and the programs of studies you, you were working on. Um, and it sounds like you've also become aware over time of the complexities and intricacies that require these sort of different disciplinary perspectives. And, and to Pat's point, I think you've really patched together in really interesting and compelling ways sort of the different expertises needed to treat these issues with the complexity that I think they, they, they require. It's, it, it really is remarkable. Um, and so, so kudos, I, I think about Pat and I, we lose friends and colleagues over time, but you certainly <laughs> collected a lot, a lot as, you, as you've gone through. So it's really uh, a testament to your, to your compelling work. So we, you, you alluded, you know, in prior conversations, we've all together talked a little bit about purpose in life and mental health, sometimes in the same conversation, but I don't think we've ever stopped to ask you, Leslie, what, when you hear the word purpose, what comes to mind for you? Does it remind you of the work in mental health or does it sound very different? Where does, what does your mind go when you hear the word or concept of purpose? Uh, uh, that's, if you ask me that question today, my answer, which you are asking me it today, my answer is different <laughs> than it would have been, you know, years ago. Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, three years ago, I probably would have said, what, what, is, what are you talking about? I don't understand what purpose is. Mm -hmm. Or I would have more thought, is it, it's, it, it, is it, you know, it sounds kind of like a soft term, like, can we really measure that? What are you talking about? Uh, but I've uh, honestly, your work, both of your work and, you know, some, some of your colleagues' work has educated me significantly in the last three years to understand better. Okay. I, I now have a deep, um, I guess, respect for the concept of purpose and the work behind it and think of it as um, a companion, I guess, to work in the mental health space. Certainly not the same construct. You know, you could have someone who's, for example, mentally very healthy and they, they might have a real strong, you know, purpose or sense of purpose, or they may not. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, I was thinking about if you if you do have someone who is having a significant depressive episode, for example, it it would be hard for me to imagine that you that you could act on your your purpose or your sense of purpose if you're in the middle of a mm -hmm. depressive episode. So, that, so then that got me thinking about from the prevention standpoint. You know, maybe it's really a way we an interesting way to blend the two disciplines and concepts is to think about. Um, at least from my vantage point, who's who's coming at it more from the you know behavioral health, mental health side of it, maybe mm -hmm. thinking about helping people, whether those are youth or adults, develop and enhance the sense of purpose as a prevention. You know, could be a really effective prevention strategy for mm. um, promoting well-being and promoting behavioral health. You know, and preventing essentially mental health problems. There's so many things there I want to unpack. So yeah, I've, uh, I'm going to jump in and start asking a few things because um, I, it, it, the first yeah. thing I, I I know this is one of, you know, we had several reasons why we were excited uh, that you were going to join us uh, today, and and one of which was 
you know, Tony and I have been in some ways using this podcast as a way of answering the questions we get a lot. Um, And one of them is something that you just alluded to, this idea of, you know, so many times I, I get asked at least, how is purposelessness different from depressive symptoms? Right, or or right. could you imagine purpose, like having a sense of purpose and direction in life as something that could go on during a depressive episode? Um, and I'm curious, like, uh, again, um, your knowledge of purpose, I guess, is somewhat uh, restricted to whatever Tony and I <laughs> threw at you, um, which is, is probably problematic. Uh, but <laughs> if uh, if you had a way of responding to this question, like, do you have ideas of how a sense of purpose and direction is distinct? I mean, obviously, it's the opposite end in some ways of depressive symptoms, um, but how you see depression or depressive symptoms and purpose on similar yet different uh, continua in some ways. Um, Do do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, I'll give it a shot. And I'd love to hear the two of your thoughts on that. Because I always ask of you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I guess I, you know, I'm thinking about this on the spot right now. Uh, When you think of you know, prevention of mental health problems, depression, behavioral health problems, it's use, you can think of it's really a useful thing is to have sort of this toolkit, this set of tools in your, you know, in your person that help you cope with challenges, stresses, help you succeed. And so when you were just talking, Pat, I was Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, if, if our, if as a society, we've been raised and grown up to be able to, you know, have the supports and and freedoms and and pr- promotion i guess of activities that enable every person to develop a sense of purpose that's and that of course isn't a stable thing you're you're what you what what you may f- express as your purpose of course is could change over time but if mm-hmm. if we have that in our toolkit in our you know in our back pocket then perhaps in times of stress or chaos or life events and certainly you know na- worldwide we've uh, all of us have undergone much stress and tr- trauma i would say the last 2 to 3 years um that maybe that's a tool a tool essentially you can pull out <laughs> that'll help you get mm-hmm. through challenging times or or stressful moments and 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 i would think it could be in partnership with other you know other tools or skills that you may have uh that help you emerge or um, weather challenging times, but I, so I guess, again, I still think of it as sort of this, um, and I know it's not only a prevention, I I don't want to sort of circumscribe purpose to be just for preventative purposes, but because of my own research and background, that's sort of the, the, the lens that I come to this with. I I think that's a really interesting point too. Like that, that was something else I wanted to uh, discuss with you is like coming from this a little bit from, you know, I, I've got a background in like health psychology and we see this a lot when it comes to preventative health measures too, that pur- purposeful people tend to be more likely to take care of themselves um, and, and more likely to get the exercise, proper diet and so forth. Um, and I, I find it a really interesting 
angle that you've brought up here from, from a different way of thinking about prevention in some ways, um, but from a similar angle of we, Tony and I have talked a lot uh, about how purposeful people tend to be very prospective. They tend to be thinking about their futures and so forth. Um, and, and in that way, they tend to prevent bad things from maybe happening to them mm-hmm. going forward mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's interesting uh, like to see the parallels here between your discussion of prevention, which obviously is taking a, a different lens, a different perspective, uh, comparing that to some of the stuff that Tony and I have been mentioning and, and Tony and I have been researching for a while on how you might be more likely to take preventative care when it comes to your physical health and, and well-being. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciate this idea and and do not, <laughs> would not caution you against mentioning yeah. it as kind mm-hmm. of a prevention mm-hmm. tool for that reason. Like that, that lens seems to fit very well. And I think we're realizing the hidden agenda of this podcast is to get some great ideas and kind of co-opt them as our own. And sure. Because the yeah. purpose as prevention is is a fantastic wondering. And it's clear why you, Leslie, would think of it that way, given your own scholarship. And I'm just, I really like this idea. If you allow me to go back for a second, I really am sort of struck by this idea when you said that you, three years ago or so, you might have thought of purpose as sort of soft. In some ways, I fully agree with that. Um, it, it, there's something about the notion of purpose that is, I don't know if it's ethereal or fleeting to people, that is flexible about what it is, and it's elusive, for, for lack of a better term. And yet, we know that it has predictive power in things like longevity, or less sickness across the lifespan, or social net, network size or, or depth. So it has real value to people. And there must, I think there's something about our ability to, to see it or think about it in, in a soft way that allows it to enter our conversations or our research agendas without too heavy-handed of scrutiny. It allows us to potentially think about it as a, as, as a source of prevention or as a moderator or buffer for some experiences or as an outcome. So in some ways, I like that feature because you kind of wonder about what it is Though I think from a research standpoint and a scientific standpoint, you're spot on. How do you measure this thing is sort of the current name of the game that, that researchers are grappling quite a bit with. So I, I appreciate your honest reflection, but that was three years ago. In your mind, is it less soft to you now or has it just been yeah. m- maneuvered differently? How do you think about it now? Absolutely. Yes. I think I, I, I think originally I did, it was sort of what you alluded to. I'm like, how, what, what is this? How do you measure it? Is this sure. like a woo-woo term? <laughs> sure. um, and of course that feeds into the, you know, just in our society, our bias towards biology and biological sciences and things that we can measure so concretely sure. compared to some of our sure. psychological constructs. So I was, you know, probably biased by those, just our norms around our, our, our biases around how we favor hard, you know, biology and chemistry and science over psychological, you know, behavioral science. Sure. Um, but I, yeah, we are measuring meaning and purpose in my ongoing study right oh, now. Wonderful. <laughs> so wonderful. You, you successfully convinced me. Um, <laughs> and then I, I, yeah. And again, I guess for me, it really is this idea of it being 
a way to to be a prevention to be a companion to you know it's different from well-being it's different from self-efficacy it's not the opposite of um depression and i still i think i i certainly have a lot to learn in terms of how it does fit in but it does seem like there's such a promotive um that is a real construct that has a promotive um uh, benefit to us as people to our lives. And I think the other thing I really, really appreciate about it and love about it is that it is something that every person, no matter what your life history has been, um, has a possibility to, to be able to develop and establish. So I, I, I like that frame too. And, you know, I, I think one of you earlier said something about purposeful people and and I think of it more like, not that a person, not that people, a person is or isn't purposeful, but that each of us has that potential to to be able to develop it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and evolve our sense of purpose as we go through life. Mm-hmm. That, I, I too appreciate that potential of purpose. Um, it seems to be kind of in the language of an asset that we all, um, assuming you know, sort of basic cognitive architecture is present and that we all have the capacity for purposeful experience or the, the sense of purpose in life or to cultivate that sense. I, a curiosity I have is, um, given given your work, even if you've not thought about this in the nature, in the context of purpose per se, but um, you've done quite a bit to motivate our understanding of the environment, whether that's the social rearing environment or, or in the notion of even preventative efforts, things we can do enact in environments that mm-hmm. may help individuals. Do you see any room in your thinking about the environment or actions or behaviors that we could do that seem relevant mm-hmm. to increasing one's sense of purpose? And I know the concept for you is still maybe yeah. elusive, but it, but do you have, do you, is there a corollary or a way to connect those, those things yeah. to you? Yeah. Some of my work is yeah. using adoption designs, adoption yep. study designs, yep. because we know that quality, you know, family members often reason, you know, resemble their family members, not only in terms of their physical appearance, but also some of their, their attributes. So like, it's more common if you're, uh, if your parent or parents or aunt or uncle or siblings are depressed that, that you may also suffer from some feelings of depression as you go through life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the general psychological literature has been based on families that are biologically related. Right. And, and the challenge there is that, well, we share genes and we share our environments. And so what's really underpinning this? So some of what we've been able, able to do with our, our adoption study, which is children who are reared from birth with parents who are, who they're not biologically related to is right. just tease apart this, this kind of the biology from the environment and, and mm-hmm. also look at how they relate to one another so that you can think about um, even if a person is, you know, comes into the world with a predisposition for for more mental health symptoms, or has had a, you know, a more a harmful prenatal environment, what can we do after that person is born in our environments to to really help them develop to their maximum potential? And so, to kind of get back to your question, I think that that is where um, I. I think purpose is something that can could could be a turning point for someone. It can 
if you have experienced adversity either through, you know, early life experiences or just your biology or some, you know, something that happened before mm-hmm. you were born in utero that you have no control over, mm-hmm. um, thinking about how we can leverage um, encouragement and promotion of purpose early in development could, could really help pe- people thrive and, and find their pathway and, and be st- happy, mm-hmm. healthy, strong contributors to our society. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I exactly answered your question. No, you, you did. I, I, I think you answered it better than Tony asked it. Um, no. Yeah, yeah. You, it, it, that, which is often the case and clearly it happened there. You know, I, I just think that that's an interesting context where we know that these I don't know, forces um, there's ways, scientific ways that are teasing apart the, the amount of variance explained by one or the other, but they're certainly in the, they're in conversation with one another. And I didn't know if you're going to think of, of, of how purpose might help people who otherwise might have a genetic predisposition, um, if there are environmental or social affordances for such things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, of, I don't think anyone has ever investigated that specific question. So that's, well, there we there we go. So there, there I've go. been looking for something that no one's ever asked, and now I have. The, um. it, it does have an interesting kind of like corollary to a bit um, from some of the work that we, like um, different labs, have done around older adulthood, where where you see individuals who have mm-hmm. kind of the biological predisposition for the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, are in some ways buffered by this the, this sense of purpose. Like it, it seems to help like individuals who may have that biological predisposition still are maintaining relatively strong cognitive functioning at times. It, and it, it is an interesting interplay, at least later in the lifespan, as to how it may help to to you know interact uh, with biology. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know of much, unless you do, Tony, earlier in the lifespan that would speak to anything anything of this nature. You know? No, that's what's fascinating to think about. I mean, I think Leslie has reminded us to think prevention mm-hmm. and kind of, if so, the earlier, the better. And that's just really sort of provocative here. And I want to be clear that it, I think there are two different pathways. Both would be interesting, but would a sense of purpose being supported earlier in the lifespan lower the presentation or how a particular predisposition may present itself? Would it sort of limit how it even shows up in a person's life? Or if that predisposition does show up eventually in someone's life, would it mitigate the the consequences of that? And I don't know if either one seems more likely in our minds, but mm-hmm. that, that's it opens up a real interesting testable hypothesis, I think. Yeah, I agree. It does. It seems like both pathways would be, would be, be certainly possible. And I think the other topic you're raising here, I was sort of going to ask you all about when, when in our lifespan do you see purpose as one being most important or two being most malleable or able to, to, to encourage or promote. And then based on your, the conversation we're having right now, I started thinking, well, maybe it is one of those things that sense of purpose can, can really help us at certain challenge points in our lives, whether that's, you know, um, changing schools, if you're a kid and you've moved across country and you're going to a new school, or as you were alluding to, Pat, having a, a health event, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, due to aging or, or disease or illness or, you know, an accident, you know, maybe that is when 
purpose is called upon hmm. to help us get get recover from those moments. But I guess I, I would just come back to this again framing of prevention. Like if you haven't learned how the, the skills to be able to develop a sense of purpose before this event or trauma happens, um, then it's going to be a lot harder to to call on it or develop it in that moment when thing when your life is stressful and so just. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like if it's an asset that we can help encourage and develop as early in development as possible, Hmm. that that Mm -hmm. will help us in those Mm -hmm. unforeseen moments in our future when, you know, bad stuff happens. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, we've I've at least gotten some similar questions before about like, when when should you promote this? And I you know, most of the literature out there finds, you know, sense of purpose seems to be linked to, just to put it broadly, good things <laughs> across the lifespan mm-hmm. to a relatively similar extent. And, and to your point, Leslie, I mean, you just kind of gave a rationale for the earlier, the better in a way. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if it is going to be preventing negative things, if it is going to be promoting good things, um, the earlier it happens in the lifespan that you could develop a sense of purpose and direction, presumably like that's the earlier you're going to reap those benefits, um, which I, I guess brings us to like, I mean, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk more about all of the work uh, uh, that you've done on kind of adolescence and adolescent development. And this, Tony and I have talked about this a few times of how important this period seems to be in particular for developing a sense of purpose or trying trying out new avenues to your direction in life. And one of the tricky things that we keep coming across in our work is that process is easier said than done <laughs> most of the time. Uh, like it, it's really easy to have these... Uh, you know, billboards or what, like self-help books say like, oh, find your purpose. And it's like, okay, great. How do I do this? Um, and it it seems to involve a lot of scaffolding along the way that if you, if you just have people going off and exploring uh, their direction or exploring what, what is meaningful to them, a lot of times, as we know from multiple areas of adolescent development, it's going to be kind of a trial and error process. Um, that I, I remember this back from uh, some of the work I did back in graduate school, thinking about why it could be beneficial to have like an inflated sense of self during adolescence. It's partly, it, it could be beneficial to help individuals because they're going to make mistakes along the way. Um, sorry, yeah. I, I swear I'm coming to a question. Where, where I'm going with this <laughs> is... I, <laughs> This exploration process uh, is so critical uh, for for our work on hel- helping people to develop a purpose, but it's so anxiety producing and stress producing for youth. And I'm curious whether you've seen any corollaries or have any um, connections to some of the work you've done with adolescents of you know, are, are there strategies for helping youth to get around obstacles, strategies for helping youth to deal with setbacks that might be valuable for thinking about how to build these into, say, purpose development or purpose exploration programs? Um, 
Uh, I wish I had a brilliant answer to your question, Pat, <laughs> and I don't. But I'll I wish I had a brilliant question for you to answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, let's start I, there. <laughs> a couple things. One, I was thinking about it's you know this period of adolescence that you were highlighting here. The other thing that happens in adolescence is that is when we see the rates of depression start to increase, especially mm-hmm. for female girls and females. And so that again, just comes back to, huh, what are we doing wrong there as a society to, 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 to stop, you know, to prevent that increase from happening? How can we think about purpose or, and, you know, other preventative strategies that could help prevent that. And, you know, I, I think the closest thing that comes to mind based on your question, as I was reflecting on some of my own work, is some of the work that I have done with, you know, a team of others with youth in foster care or youth in ju- juvenile justice is to have them paired with, you know, we, you know, a coach or a skill trainer, someone who's almost like a peer, a little bit older, but who is working with them to, f- to find out what they enjoy, what their love is, where their passions are. And then spend two hours or four hours a week with them every week, you know, engaged in that activity. And it's going to, it's individually tailored. So for what it is for one youth is, is it's going to be something totally different for another youth. So helping them explore what they really enjoy, find enjoyment out of, and then having that routine, having that predictable routine every week of getting to do that activity with this trusted person uh, who's, who's not there to, provide therapy, you know, it's, it's not there as a mm-hmm. punishment either. It's, it, it, it really is a, a positive experience. Um, maybe finding ways to build more opportunities in, you know, our youth's lives where, where they have those positive experiences that are tailored around them, but also within that space have the ability to, to, to explore, to take some risks, to, to venture out because I think, you you all can correct me as the experts on purpose, but it seems like it would be hard to really find or develop your purpose if you're if you're not willing to take a little bit of risk there to try something. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's that's a really interesting point. It's just it, it sort of I would add that to the list of questions about what are the developmental precursors or prerequisites to experiencing a sense of purpose, and there's some that seem pretty obvious, right? The ability to prospect, the ability to think ahead, mm-hmm. a willingness to challenge or accept challenge and not retreat from threat or stress, but to actually engage with challenge sort of head on or in a creative way um, seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. And it makes me really think about, especially when you think about your work and mental health, is there may be another way we can connect mental health, but in particular depressive symptoms with with purpose is if you remind us that some of these symptoms, increases in mental health problems that we might detect are happening for the first detectable time in adolescence. That's also the time that we see active identity explorations and potentially then purposeful explorations. And it may not be that those things are so separate. Mm -hmm. It could be that for some young people, what is depressing is either the inability to perceive oneself in the future in a meaningful way or really not having an answer for that when people around you might be starting to formulate an answer or running into real obstacles to the things that young people want to pursue. 
So we started asking young people, who are you? What do you go up to? What, what, kind of, what, what are you going to do in society? And those that might not have a clear answer or those whose answers don't satisfy the adults around them, it may not be a far jump to see why we might see some struggles, emotional struggles um, for young people who are trying to find their way, yeah. but don't find an environment that's very welcoming of that. I don't know if that idea is even that controversial, but it seems like there may be a very clear way in which some young people might really struggle. Right. Yeah, you're, I really appreciate your comments here. It's making me think about, and I am certainly guilty of this, both as a parent and um, as a, a friend of young people, <laughs> as our common question to youth during, you know, adolescence, the, the broad lifespan of adolescence all the way from, you know, 10 or so all the way into their 20s is, oh, we're, you know, what are you going to do? What are you studying? What are you going to do? What what job do you have? What 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 do you want to be when you, basically it's the adolescent version of what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, um, that's right. I think you were, you, you describe this better than I am right now, but w- instead of asking that, which, you know, as much as we're, we're, we try to ask those questions as if there is no right or wrong answer, you know, that there, there is, there's, there's, there's answers that are going to be received better than other answers. That's right. And That's right. maybe what we, we need to be reframing what we're asking to say like, well, what do you, what do you really like doing? What do you find the most enjoyment in? And what are you good at? And instead of what are you going to do when you grow up? Sure. That's such a great point. I, and some, something I am equally um, problematically doing all the time with my, my nieces of asking them, what are you going to do? What are you going to like, what do you want to do? And, um, and, and I think what's really interesting here, and I'm sorry for belaboring this point so much is how much similarity and symmetry we see with some of the recommendations you're bringing up to recommendations made much later in the lifespan uh, of talking, you know, some of the programs to promote purposefulness and sense of purpose among o- older adults do that, that exact thing, Leslie, like you're, you're bringing up uh, like this notion of asking, what are the activities you find meaningful? What are the things that, that make you feel like you're engaged? And, and that's something very common in programs for helping retirees or helping individuals to find a direction later in life. And I think it's a great point here. And like, particularly that added piece of being all of us being a bit at fault with, with asking you, (laughs) what are you going to do? Or what, what, what's the next step for you? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a really great point. And sorry, Tony, did you have a follow up to that or no, no well i mean it's actually just, i can put a sharper edge to to a question for leslie on this in that so i, I just think that's an interesting insight that the when we become aware of how we're interacting with young people and what are our motivations and intentions for the questions we ask but separating those from what it must feel like to be asked those questions and mm-hmm. to to leslie your point about sort of anticipating, right? Young people are savvy. They, they know that they can answer honestly or they could answer strategically and you know <laughs> they're going to figure out how, how to do that or they're not. And I can see how that may lead to struggles uh, for them. Mm-hmm. But I think for to, to, to try to really make something of the potential connection here, I wonder, Leslie, what you'd say to this question. When you look at the current landscape of mental health research with youth, it's a paradox in some ways, because at the same time, I would argue we have 
a lot of active, ongoing inquiry into youth mental health. It certainly isn't being ignored in, in psychological research, to be sure. And yet the trends aren't so favorable. Mm -hmm. So what area of research do you think, if we only knew more about, we could really start to address this in a serious and favorable way? And I know that's a big question, but I just wonder what you see as the most viable active space that either we are currently starting to probe into or we're just not there yet that you think we really should be. Oh, wow. I am going to give that a stab here. And <laughs> I'll say I, I, think, I think we really aren't good at detecting the early, the precursors, the early signs that, huh, something's hmm. not quite hmm. right for this individual. And and then once we identify that, what can we put in place to help get them on track? Hmm. And I would also say, I think part of our challenge there is that, you know, the first part is that, you know, we're not identifying everybody. People are falling through the cracks. That's hmm. Hmm. without a doubt. But then when people are identified, less than half of youth who, are, who have a serious, who have a, a significant depressive episode, less than half of them are getting services and treatment. Hmm. So we now have this problem where, okay, we have identified something going on here and we're, we're not getting people matched up with the right programs or services. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece I would say there is we know that us as humans, adolescents, you know, everyone across the life stage is different and what is going to work for one, best for and the strategy that might help one individual is not necessarily what might help another. So we need to be thinking a lot about, um, you know, they, our field thinks about it like what works for whom and why. So why, you know, what strategy might be, what prevention or intervention approach might be better for mm -hmm. this 12-year-old boy might be really different than what is going to mm -hmm. work for this 14-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. Uh and we just haven't refined or tailored our that the identification of okay here's the the profile of challenges that one person is having here's what we know about that profile in terms of the best strategies and then aligning those two to provide to provide the services um i got one more little kind of riff on this too which is I, i've been thinking a lot about how you know depression is essentially it's it's, it's, it's having two or more weeks of being, you know, feeling depressed, sad, lack of energy, you know, lack of sleep, lack of co concentration. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course was, there's a lot going on in the world and m many of us may, you know, many people may have been experiencing those kinds of stressors or, or feelings because of, of things happening in the world or in our lives. And so how do we, how do we kind of make it be okay for for someone to feel sad? You know, hmm. when when something tragic happens in your life, we do want to encourage our youth to have emotions, to feel sad, to feel anger, to feel passion, and and yet not label that as depression. Mm -hmm. So, I just I think we're not really good at sort of sep. I it's it's not a there's not sort of a real distinct fine line between you know, mental health, depression, no depression. It's, 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 it definitely is a continuum. And how do we encourage healthy emotion expression in appropriate contexts when mm. bad stuff has happened around us? Mm. 
and allow a person to to feel and express that in a healthy way. And I, I guess I was thinking about maybe well, maybe that's also where purpose comes in that you can, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can for real life reasons be sad or depressed, but retain your sense of purpose and have that to keep you through this moment and without, you know, technically being depressed. How, how, how purpose may sort of stretch out beyond any one moment into sort of uh, an understanding that there will be other moments that lie ahead. Some of the, in the purpose right. exemplar literature, uh, a lot of the individuals who most of us would associate as being sort of purpose exemplars are really great examples of purposeful living. Mm-hmm. They Their lives were replete with happy, joyful moments, but also sad moments or downright angry moments. <laughs> and we, and the people around them probably weren't trying to truncate their anger, right? That that was part and parcel of the, of the life course or the undulations of experience include that. So going back to this youth sort of solicited sort of honest answer or strategic answer, we might think about ways we could help young people answer honestly. Like today, I don't feel great, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean tomorrow won't be better. Um, And it may be purposeful thinking that can help young people see a future. And I think that's where, if you look at sort of the the, the, the measurement work of why a sense of purpose might be inversely related to feelings of depression, could be purposeful individuals do think about their future in really agentic ways. It's if it, it's that um, it may not look so great ahead, but I can play an active role in making it better. And so we don't want to, you know, ignore the negative feeling because that helps them make something better tomorrow. Uh, so I I just think there's a lot of space in that for our purpose inquiry to show up and to ask what role might purpose play um, for, for the young people who we all. And just to add one more piece to all that, uh, I, I love the discussion you're bringing up here, Leslie, on um, continuous versus non-continuous or discontinuous constructs. And and you raised this point uh, earlier in the episode, Leslie, about the term purposeful. Like, should, mm-hmm. to, to what mm-hmm. extent are we using that term in a way that allows people uh, and allows youth to be okay saying they need assistance or help with their direction, um, I think is something else that we need to be considering as well. And, and um, like the purpose exemplar literature and, and labeling youth as purposeful might leave an impression that it's kind of a all or none, <laughs> like you have it or you don't. Um, and, and you brought up the the parallel there with respect to uh, depressive symptoms or, or, or feeling and I think there's something there that uh, we can also borrow from your literature in terms of being able to say, you know, again, not everybody feels purposeful every day. Like the most purposeful people are not going to feel like every day they're hitting it out of the park. And that's right. right. Being able to be okay with that um, as part like of this movement for us to get youth more engaged with purpose or more focused on building a purpose um, is something else we can borrow from from the work you've been doing and, and others on mental health and, and almost making it okay <laughs> to, to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, we're coming close to, to the end here, um, but are there any other, uh, I, I'm 
thoroughly impressed, Leslie, with your ability to answer questions today that both were bold and big and also remarkably loquacious. And (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I I would be remiss if we didn't give you the opportunity. Like, are there any other questions you have for us or any other things that have come up along the way that you have for us? Yeah, I think I I just... I continue to be, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this, the field goes in this space and what learning about what kinds of, um, I'm hesitant to even call them interventions, but supports, programs, tactics can be used um, to promote, you know, the development of purposefulness in, you know, beginning at a early age. I would, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at myself too, being in a college of education, I always think about schools, you know, that's where it's an attachment mm-hmm. era. That's where all of our youth are. And so just thinking about ways where we can um, bring this concept and, and an understanding of the concept and then ultimately a promotion of the concept into our school system would be a pretty, could be a pretty amazing way to have a broad impact, you know, on, on society. So I know, I, I know you, you all said, we, yeah, it's the, the, the research right now is, you know, still developing in terms of interventions, but that, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any fine, any additional thoughts on that, but that's really where I'd, I'd be curious and really looking with eager eyes to see where things develop. I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, the things you've raised today at, at some of the counseling literature might be the best pathways in terms of helping individuals to connect what they do in their day-to-day life with what is important and what seems personally defining to them. Um, to my, like if if I were to put money down on something, that, that seems like the route going forward for trying to help individuals define this sense of purpose and, and direction. And, and one thing that we haven't come back to yet that I, I loved your comment earlier, Leslie, about they may need to take some risks. Yeah. Like this is something we we often talk about purposefulness as being related to less risky behavior. Uh, like Tony's done work among others on how purposeful people tend to be not not that impulsive. They they tend to be taking fewer health risks and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and I love your point here of, you know, if you're trying to do this big thing about finding your direction for life. Um, I, I guess, at least for me, that that was kind of a spark in terms of you mentioning the need to take risks and the need to be okay with taking risks may be kind of an important element that we, we're currently missing mm-hmm. in these programs. Yeah. I'm with you, Leslie, that uh, the, the, the future is what's brightest at risk of a pun there, but the, the future purpose research is where I think we have a lot to learn. And in the intervention so-called space, what's interesting is when you think of some of the work that's happening around, I don't know, um, like youth self-driven learning or in a flexible way, sort of service learning, where starting with what youth are sort of naturally drawn to, what are they doing, you know, in addition to their day jobs, in addition to their schoolwork, what do they find themselves doing? And then using those topics, those contents, those experiences to build other learning activities or other ways of engaging them. So it may be a little bit to our original point, um, 
softer entry point rather than showing and saying, what is your purpose? Tell me now. I can maybe sit back and observe what you're doing. What do you value? How do you, you know, allocate your finite resources and learn a little bit about that and invest in those things. And then we might get further into the story a little bit about how this may be something that young people can start to name and start to formulate a, a better sense of or a deeper sense of that then to the point of being useful in a situation that they're not in now, but might find themselves in downstream. And so I think that's, it's what's to come in this space that I think keeps me really sort of connected to it. And, and so I'm looking forward yeah. to that as well. I agree. And I think we've designed, we've on this um, podcast actually talked about a few little even brief interventions we could do together at some point. So this is the first time the podcast has led to something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, that no, absolutely. Yeah, just the intervention of asking kids, you know, drawing out from youth what they enjoy, as opposed to saying, well, "What would you like to? What are you going to do?" That's an easy, easy design that you know could have measurable impacts. I, I think so. Yeah, it's it would be neat to kind of think this through a little bit. Um, I, I we probably should, um, you know, be respectful of your time and just say thank you humbly. Thank you for spending some time with us today, in, in, in engaging, or should I say, enduring this conversation. But for <laughs> us, it's been it's been absolutely wonderful. And so, thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It was wonderful for me as well. Uh, yes, thank you so much. I, I know at least Tony and I. This was a very engaging and exciting activity to, to your question from earlier. Indeed. So I, we hope you, you enjoyed it as well. Yep. And uh, we will join you next time, uh, dear listener, on your direction for the next episode about the empirical study of purpose. See you next time.